Hey, if you've got your Bibles or maybe a phone app or something like that, I'd encourage you to turn to an unusual book, Second Chronicles. Yes, I know it. You're gonna flip right to the New Testament and go to Corinthians and not have any idea where we are. It's in the Old Testament. There's like a series of books there that kind of overlap the same stories. You've got First and Second Samuel, then First and Second Kings, and then First and Second Chronicles. We're going to be in Second Chronicles, um, chapter 34. This same story that plays out in Second Chronicles 34 and 35 plays out in Second Kings 22 and 23. Um, it's it's just a different um, way of looking at things. I think one goes into more detail about one aspect of the story than another, and you can kind of go back and forth between the two passages if you want to. But 2 Chronicles 4, 34. So there's this last character we're gonna cover, and there were so many, we narrowed it down to a couple. And we debated about Josiah, because Josiah is not necessarily like, like really behind the scenes. He was a king uh, of Israel, right? So he, he's not unknown, but we don't really hear much about Josiah, and what I really would love to bring out is just the fact that he was such a youngster when he became king and what God did through him, and I think there's so many beautiful lessons that we can learn here with this child king, Josiah. So maybe that's given you enough time to find Chronicles. All of that was just to give you time to find Chronicles. Um, we are in chapter 34 here. We're gonna read the first two verses here, and it says this. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Then check out this statement. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And he walked the ways of his father David. Now, if you know much about the kings, David was not his father. Wasn't even his grandfather. David was like the first king of Israel. So we're talking about many generations later, but it's great that they point back to the fact that he followed after David, not after the more, and we'll find out why in a minute, but, but I love the fact that he, it says that. And then he says, and then it says this, he turned, he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. There are so much packed in these two short introductory verses here. And as we journey into the story, these few statements will become more remarkable as we learn more about this King Josiah. So Josiah was eight years old when he became king because his father, Ammon, was assassinated two years into his reign. He was a wicked man who led Israel into idolatry. But his father, Manasseh, was even worse. He was the worst. And I don't mean that as a modern-day phrase, like that was the worst. He, he was the worst king of Israel. He reigned for 55 years. He desecrated the temple of the Lord by putting idols in the temple of the Lord. He led the Israelites into religious practices that included the sacrificing of children they actually became more wicked than the original inhabitants of the land that they took over. But what I love here is it says that Josiah did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. So how is it that you have a horrible, the worst grandfather, and you have a horrible father, but that you end up having it said of you that you did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. I'll tell you why, because your past doesn't have to determine your future. 
I know it's easy to look back on that. And there's this thing called learned helplessness. Have you heard that? Learned helplessness is because of what you have experienced in the past, you have a strong sense of being unable to become anything other than what you have experienced. It's learned helplessness. Folks, that is not a godly principle. Learned helplessness is a situation. It's a condition, but it's not permanent. And I'm not saying your past has no influence on you. And I'm not saying that, that you won't bring along some baggage from who your daddy was or who your mama was or what your lineage is or the experiences that you have. It is part of who you are. But what I am saying is that all things do become new. And if you constantly look at what you have been, you won't see what you can become. If your whole life is defined by what you've experienced, I believe you're missing out on what your future could be. And I want, I want to speak life to you this morning. I want to encourage you this morning that that is where you are from and that is who you were influenced by and that is what you have experienced and I would never minimize the pain of that. I would never, I would never seek to, to say that that is not a legitimate issue in your life. There's no doubt about it. But what, what, I, what I would encourage you with this morning is that does not have to become who you are going to be. The key to a better future is to see what can be. You can change your family tree. What has happened to you has brought you to where you are, but where you go from here is up to you and God. And here's what I love is that God sees your future as hope-filled. Now, please understand, I didn't say it would be trouble-free. Wishful thinking. I didn't say that it would be problem-free or stress-free or pain-free, but it is hope-filled. God focuses on your future, knowing what your past has been, and a God-focused life has a hope-filled future. Wayne Dyer said this, our lives are the sum of the decisions we make. Now, there's a lot to unpack from that verse. Our lives are the sum of the decisions we make. But I want to emphasize our lives are the sum of the decisions we make from here. Our God, where are we going? We have a hope-filled future. You have a plan. You may not have even caused what I've been through, but our future is hope-filled because God is a part of that equation. So in his teen years, I love this, Josiah, he, he became king at eight years of age. And then scripture tells us that in his teen years, he began to seek the Lord. The very next verse, so 2 Chronicles 
34, verse 3 says this, for in the eighth year of his reign, so he started when he was eight, and in the eighth year of his reign would put him at the age of 16, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. This is so encouraging for me. He had no influence on what his daddy had done. He, he had no say-so in who his granddaddy was, but he was able to decide what he was going to do from this point on. So I'm thinking, like, who spoke into his life? Who was it that got a hold of his heart? I know that in the Second Kings version, the first verse or two looks very similar to what we just read in Second Chronicles 34, but it adds this little phrase. It just says, and his mother was Jedidah. And I almost have this feeling like that was inserted on purpose to let us know that she had some influence over who this boy became. We also read of other men that were in his life that had some kind of an impact. There was a, a priest that we're gonna learn about in just a moment. There was a scribe that we'll hear about later on. But there were people in his life, I believe, that maybe made some kind of a difference here. But I think too often we undersell young people, don't we? We kind of put this parentheses on those teenage years. You realize that that's a, that's a modern term, this idea of teenager. You used to have youths and adults. That was it, right? You became an adult. But we've put this parentheses on the teenage years like it's acceptable for them to act like an idiot. Okay, they're just gonna do that anyway, right? But we just, we don't, we, we've, we feel like, well, you know, they have to be this way. Or they have to sow their wild oats. No, they don't. No, we can have a higher standard for our children. They can make meaningful decisions for the Lord as a teenager. At the age of 16, he decided to serve the Lord and to seek the Lord with his life. Don't assume that young people have to wait until they're older to do anything for God. There are so many examples in history of teenagers doing incredible things with their lives. One of the most remarkable things as you, as you read the history of the founding fathers of this nation was that as teenagers, they were incredible people already and they're leading armies when they turn 18 or 21. They were, their whole timeline of life began much sooner than what we are doing. We think that, well, they can be kids all the way through college and be stupid all the way through college, and then maybe one day, if we're lucky, they'll do something with their life. It doesn't have to be that way. We undersell them. God is no respecter of persons. We need God just as much in our teenage life as we do in our adult life. Why do we give them a pass? Why do, we, why do we wait until they're older before we have conversations about God? Why do we only want to get back into church when we have children? Why are we just okay them not being okay and hoping they turn out one day? When he was 16 years old, he sought the Lord. Regardless of your background or your home environment, God sees past all of that. He sees your potential. How unfair is it 
that teenagers make most of the most important decisions of their life when they don't have the sharpest tools? Like they're figuring out what they want to do with life. They're deciding where to go to college or not. They're deciding what to do with a career. They're deciding who to date. They're deciding who to marry. They're deciding all of these big things in their life when they're not fully equipped. It might take more faith for a teenager to make these decisions than some of the decisions you have to make as an adult. Don't just throw up your hands. Help guide them in this time of their life to seek the Lord and make quality decisions based on what God says in his word, based on what God is doing in their life. God's promises are not age-specific. They're for your kiddos just as much as they are for you. They are for your teenagers. And teenager, hear me, they're for you. They're for you. By, by the way, church is for you. Teenagers, this is your relationship with the Lord. And God's promises are not just for your mom and dad. God's promises are for you. And there is much that you can do for God as a teenager. One change that we're making coming this fall is that our teenagers, once they hit ninth grade, we want them involved in church. We want them singing in the, in the, on the worship team. We want them handing out bulletins. We want them working in the nursery. We want them serving in our community. And rather than have a separate service for them on a Sunday where they do their own thing, I want them to understand they're a part of this church. And they are not only accepted, but they are trusted to serve the Lord right along with us. What better way for them to, to create that habit of serving the Lord and coming to church? Of course, mamas and daddies need to do that as well. But we're hoping that what this does is it helps bridge the gap from the time they graduate from high school to the time that they start having babies that they go ahead and just realize that church is for them. Because it is. Because teenagers can do some pretty incredible things. Teenagers can do great things. And I think we forget that. God's not intimidated or limited by your age, so don't you be either. Don't wait to step out of the boat. Don't wait to exercise faith until when you become an adult. That's something that you can do right now. It's estimated that David killed Goliath when he was 17. Maybe younger. Daniel and his three friends refusing to eat the meat and standing up for their principles and what God had commanded of them, they were young teenagers. And there's a portion of the book of the, a portion of the, book of the Bible that tells that whole story. When Jesus needed to feed 5,000 people, there was a lad, a young boy, who had a lunch that he offered to the Lord. When Joseph was sold as a prisoner by his brothers. He was a young teenage boy. By the time he was in Potiphar's house, running the household, he was a teenager. When he fled from the temptation of Potiphar's wife and was thrown into jail, he was still in his teenage years. God can do great things with teenagers. And what I think one of the keys 
of Josiah's success was that Josiah was teachable. As an eight-year-old boy, you know a king needed help. And as a 16-year-old, he began to seek the Lord. And God, I believe, placed mentors in his life. Can I just ask that you don't ever become unteachable? Like, how refreshing is it when, when somebody who's older in life are still asking questions and still wanting to learn and don't act like they know it all? Because there's nothing, honestly, there's, there's, there's very few things that'll shut people down in your life than when you act like you know it all. There's a, there's a, there's a certain amount of arrogance there. But I believe when we are teachable and humble before God, and I think as long as we stay teachable, God can continue to use us and speak into our life. And you should never get over that. And that's, and come on, you know that's the struggle, right? So as a teenager becomes an adult, <laughs> whenever that happens, there's this, there's this switch that flips. And if they can remain teachable during that period of time, they could avoid a lot of pitfalls and a lot of mistakes. But because they shut down and think mom and dad are idiots, that nobody can teach them anything, and now they're, now they're an adult because the calendar changed. They're, they're, you know, now they have an, a 1-8 instead of a 1-7. All of a sudden their whole life changes, and now they know everything. Personal experience excluded, of course. I'm just saying <laughs> that I've heard that this was how it happens with some families. But it's like, it's like nothing magically happened to them when they became 18. So let's stay teachable. Let's still listen to the people who love us. Let's still follow after God. Let's, let's respect the people that God has put into our lives and stay teachable. So by the age of 20 then, he began to institute a series of reforms to turn Israel back to God. At age 26, he actually physically began to rebuild the temple of the Lord. This is a big deal to the Israelite community. Because there, the temple was where God dwelt, right? That's, that's where God came down to meet with his people. Their religious life revolved around the temple. So Josiah prioritized worship. He wanted to make worship a big thing for Israel again. So he sends three men to Hilkiah the priest with money. He gives the money to begin the reconstruction of the temple, and they gave the money to the foreman. The foreman gave it to the craftsmen, and the craftsmen gave it to the workers. And so the work could begin. And just as a little aside here, this is like a footnote on the bottom of this sermon. But in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 7, it tells us, I love this attitude, that, they, that, that, that the king tells the workers, you don't even have to give an accounting of the money that we gave you because I'm, I know you're faithful men. I'm just going to trust you to do the work because you're faithful men. And so then during this renovation, a book of the law was found by Hilkiah the priest. So they find a book of the law, probably Moses' writings, in the temple. And they bring this to Josiah. And Josiah asks them to read him the book of the law that they just found. When Josiah hears the words of God, he tears his clothes 
and begins to weep because he realizes how far their kingdom has come from what God had commanded. And he understands that because of the decisions they've made, that judgment is coming. But Josiah not only prioritized worship, but he prioritized God's word. Look at his response. God's word is powerful. But let me tell you this. We say God's word is powerful, but God's word is only as powerful as we respond to it. They didn't just see this book and say, oh, look at this ancient artifact. Let's put this on display so everybody can see this old book of the law. They saw this book as actually carrying the message of God from God for them. Here's what I love, right? They didn't just read the word of God for comfort. They didn't run to the word of God when they just needed something, although I encourage that. They didn't read the Bible just to get out of it what they thought they needed for the day. They read God's word to hear what God had to say. Do you see the difference When you only go to God like a buffet, like I'll have that and I'll have that, you're not hearing from God. You're finding what you want to hear. And I've heard it sometimes like God's word is a medicine cabinet. You know, if you you need this, then God gives you this verse. And I'm not opposed to any of that because I believe that God's word has the power to do all of that. But I think that for a general rule, we need to sit down and read the word of God and let God speak to us and tell us what we need to hear. How refreshing would it be if you opened up the Bible and said, all right, what do I need to hear? That's a dangerous prayer, by the way. About two weeks ago, I was having a moment with the Lord and I'm like, all right, what is it? Like what, what? And he pointed it out just like that. And I'm like, no, not that. That's how we are. Like, God, what is it? What, what am I feeling? Oh, no, uh, what else you got? <laughs> Let's work out. I'll fix that later. What a, open the Bible and let God speak to you. Now, please understand, I want you to get comfort from God's word. I want you to get instruction from God's word. I want you to use God's word. I think we've talked about taking verses and writing them on a card and sticking them on a mirror or putting them somewhere where you see all the time so that you can begin to get the word of God consistently in your life. I'm for all of that. I'm just saying that we need to let God's word speak to us the way that God wants to speak to us. What do you have to say, God? And then what we do with what we hear matters to God. I believe that makes the difference. That's what shows us how powerful God's word is. So we gotta find out what God is saying here. So, so he hears this judgment from the word of God that's gonna happen to the Israelites because of the way they've conducted themselves for the last, oh, 60 years or so. And so he says, I've got to find out what we're going to do. Like, is it possible that God will stay his hand of judgment against us? And so he sends Hilkiah the priest and some other men, and they go to this gal named Huldah, who is a prophetess of the Lord. 
do whatever you want with that. So this prophetess hears from God and communicates to them in verse 27. She says, yes, judgment is coming. Yes, what you read is true. But here she says this in verse 27, because your heart was tender. I love that so much. It has this idea of being softened, almost faint-hearted, like, like what you heard tenderized your heart. So, so because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself, literally it means to bow the knee before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants and you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. And the next couple of verses tell us that God says, as long as you're king, I'm going to stay the judgment. That same year, Josiah threw the greatest Passover feast in the history of Israel since the time of Solomon. And then here's what's really strange. So after, after reigning for 31 years, we have this odd ending to his life. So there's a king of Egypt named Necho that is traveling through their land, going to fight somebody else. And Jedediah makes a big deal about it. Jedediah goes, I'm, I'm going to go out against this king. And I'm going to fight against the king of Egypt. And what is strangely missing from this occurrence is God telling him to do it or him asking God's opinion or getting his advice from anybody. In fact, Scripture tells us that he did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. It says that in the other version, the, the one in 2 Kings. So it's saying here, like, like he did not heed what Necho was saying from the mouth of God. And so he disguises himself. That's never a good idea. Like, like how often has that worked out well in Scripture? Like if you feel like you have to disguise yourself when you go into battle, it may be an indicator that God's not in favor of this battle. So he disguises himself and goes into battle. He is struck by an arrow, and he dies. And Israel mourns. If you read the writings of the prophet Jeremiah, he was a contemporary of Josiah, and Jeremiah is weeping, lamenting what has happened to his king because he was the last good king of Judah. And then several years later, you had the judgment that was predicted. But I just want to remind you this. So you look at his life, and we started this. He didn't end well. Like, this is a really strange ending to a great life. And I want to remind ourselves that our failures don't define us. We look at his life, and we have to be reminded of what it said in the first portion of Scripture that we read, that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. It seems like a disappointing end to his life. How he ended does not seem like what 
like the life that he lived. And I'd like to remind us that our lives are more of a motion picture than a snapshot. So don't judge yourself and don't judge other people based on a moment of failure. Because he was remembered as a king who did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. And that he sought after the God of his father, David. And I'm not, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm as baffled as anybody else as to what might have caused him to go against this Egyptian king. And we aren't told very much about it other than the fact that he did not listen to the words of that king from the mouth of God. But it doesn't seem a fitting end to somebody who followed God. But don't allow that failure in your life to be what defines you. Remember that that snapshot of your life is not necessarily who you are or how God sees you. And my encouragement to you this morning is like, it's gonna get better. You have a hope-filled future. And you have a God that knows what the end of the book is going to be. And that's what is exciting to me because of the fact that you serve a living God that knows what you need and has what you need in life from this point on. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for being the God of all hope. Thank you for your word. Help it to speak to us. And thank you for this character in the Bible, Josiah, that his incredible life has become this example to us on what can happen and how we can live, regardless of what our past is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.